0: Hi, I'm Mark Dolan, and I'm appearing as a guest on Comedy Bloggerdy, which is the brainchild of the media entrepreneur that is Sarah Shulman. And I'll be talking about my career as a stand-up and my Edinburgh show, which is happening at the Gilded Balloon Billiard Room, 7.45 every night um, throughout the fringe throughout the month of August. The show's called You're Awesome, and my uh, Twitter name is at Dolan facebook.com forward slash Mr Mark Dolan and my glossy and frankly much too expensive website markdolan.com please come and e-stalk me because I love the attention.
1: So Mark how did you get into comedy?
0: Well I think if you ask a lot of comedians how they got into comedy they would uh, find it quite hard to kind of work out the exact moment because when I was at school I was a bit of a show-off, I did impressions and things like that. And any excuse to get up in front of my fellow pupils and make an idiot of myself, I I seized that. So I kind of had a taste of it when I was at school and also at uni. I went to Edinburgh University, so therefore I had the Fringe on my doorstep. And it was an amazing thing to have your own flat during the Fringe because, of course, I was a student at the uni. Um, So I did do a lot of improv at the Edinburgh Fringe as part of the Edinburgh University uh, Theatre Company. It was a midnight show every night at the Fringe. So that was a really good kind of early baptism of fire. Um, and then my stand-up career kind of started in a more formal way in the early noughties. It was either 2000 or 2001, and I hit the competition circuit, which is what most young comedians do these days. And, um, and I, I did well at the uh, So You Think You're Funny, and I managed to get to the final of So You Think You're Funny. Um, and it was a really, really special occasion because Graham Norton was the host and, you know, Graham's obviously a huge, huge star now, but he was then as well. He's been massive for a long time, it turns out. <laughs> so it was a great thing to be compared by Graham Norton. Wow. And it was quite a fun year, actually, because um, that was the same year uh, that Russell Brand was in the final. And um, Matthew Horne from um, Gavin and Stacey. He was in a double act in those days and a few others. So it was uh, it was really good because it was the first time in my short comedy career that I I felt it was appropriate to maybe um, pursue this as a job. You know, that was the first time that an external um, body had had kind of decreed that yeah maybe there was something there that uh, there was definitely potential. So it was uh, yeah, it was enough to hang on to for that kept me going for a couple of years as I struggled in spit and sawdust pubs getting no reaction.
1: So what was your first stand up gig like?
0: My first stand up gig uh, went quite well, which I think is really unhelpful because that gave me you know the idea of doing this forever and you know every I mean, so many gigs after the first one were in- horrific i mean just impossible but that first one was quite special i was at a late night stand up event um during the fringe and it was 1996 and the night was called the bear pit cabaret which is in the Teviot building which is the Gilded balloon venue now thank god the bear pit cabaret has ceased to exist probably that the closest equivalent is is late and live and it was maybe 1 in the morning, one thirty, And uh, it, was, it it had a slight element of open mic about it. It was an interesting mix because you'd have a, a brilliant established comic on like Jim Owen, someone like that, Ed Byrne, and then some unknowns. And that night uh, had been a really good bill, a really great night. But suddenly this old Scottish man got up on stage and he was completely incoherent. I mean, he wasn't even drunk, but he was just bizarre and offbeat and... The audience weren't getting it. And because it was one in the morning, the atmosphere kind of turned quite quickly and turned quite nasty. And his poor man was, he was just suffering badly. And I just had a, I was with some friends. I had a rush of blood to the head. I was doing a lot of improv at the time. So I, you know, I was in the improv, improvising mindset. And I just said, I've got to get on there. I've, I've got an idea. So I rushed up to the woman who was kind of organising the running order and I said, look, do you mind if I go on? There's this complete carnage here. I've got, I think I could add something. And she's like, whatever, can't get any worse than this. (laughs) So she sent me on. So I rushed up on stage and uh, there was the tech guy handing me another microphone. So I grabbed the microphone and they were always booing this guy and he was struggling. And I just said, how dare you like this? Okay, and it was just an incredibly terrifying moment because at that point the, the all the noise just stopped you get a pin drop and i just said that is my dad okay and he's doing his best he's a very funny man and and basically i just improvised an insane rant about how brilliant this man was what a key figure he was and, what, and i just time i obviously took the piss basically um but in a way of being very positive about what he was doing and the audience, thank God, it was just that moment where people started to look at each other and kind of giggle and then laugh, and it went down a storm. So it was—it was like a five-five minute rant, and I did so. I, and what happened is that I did—we uh, dealt with the old man, and then I did a bit of stuff, you know, because I'd obviously like you know anyone that's thinking about stand-up has always got ideas about stuff that they would do. And it went really, really well. And at the end of the at the end of my set, I just said this has been amazing. This is the first time I've ever done stand up. OK. And when I said that, there was an absolute roar. It's like the roof came off the place. And I said, can I come back tomorrow night? And they were like, yeah, you know, and that was it. So I walked off and it was just like I was the hero of the hour. It was I mean, honestly, not exaggerating. It was a very, very special moment. And a lot of very drunk uh, Scottish people who I would normally, uh, you know, be in fear of my life of were coming up to me and saying, you know, you're fantastic. You've got it. You know, this this is your path. So that's good. So anyway, I came back the next night, died on my ass. Worst gig ever. I mean, complete opposite. So there you go. In one 24 hour period, that is that is the kind of bipolar existence that is being a stand up comedian
1: so how often did you start gigging after your first amazing gig and then second not so great gig my
0: education as a stand-up has always been very haphazard and untidy so it's come in fits and starts um, I'd love to have been one of those comics who um, who you know just filled up their diary you hear stories of people doing 200 250 gigs a year for the first three years they've got a career plan um, that was never really my style. I always had a more organic approach to it. So it came in fits and starts. So I'd do a couple in a week and then nothing for a month. And that's where the So You Think You're Funny stand up competition really helped. And I know that stand up competitions are much maligned, um, in some circles within the comedy community but I think what's useful about them is that they give uh, they give a comedian a bit of structure a bit of a discipline where you've got to get five or seven or ten minutes together and it it's a bit like I don't know let's say you want to get fit and you decide you're going to do the London marathon you know a certain point as that date looms you find you've got your running shoes on and you're, you're out there because you just know so I think that's really good and I think a lot of comedians certainly myself included are natural procrastinators so the knowledge that that was coming was a really good thing for me so yeah so I think that's when it got more sort of I took it more seriously um, and was getting as much gig time as possible prior to the final of So You Think You're Funny and after that I wound up getting quite a few telly opportunities so my approach to stand up has been the opposite of most people I would say because normally people gig for years and years and years in order to get on telly and then they get on telly and then they can pick and choose what they do whereas the opposite for me which I did a bit of stand up got an opportunity to do a TV series called The Richard Taylor Interviews for Channel 4 which was a hidden camera job interview show and um, and I never really I, I didn't you know the stand up was unfinished business and I worked in broadcasting for a number of years and it was only many years later I would say around 2007 when I started emceeing regularly again because I missed stand up so much um, started emceeing every Saturday at the Amused Moose which is a fantastic I would say iconic club in uh, in Soho and that became, you know, that was when I had my renaissance as a stand-up. And that's, that's when I just thought, you know, I've been missing this. It was, it was really, really fantastic. And uh, so since then, um, I've just tried to make sure that I never take my eye off the ball as a stand-up. And, you know, luckily, all these five years on, six years on, um, I'm loving every minute of it.
1: Well, a lot of people say that comedy can help when you go onto television and that it can be great for confidence as well as flexibility as a performer. But did you find that having performed for so many years on television and getting into it faster than a lot of other stand-ups do, has that had an effect on your style of comedy?
0: I think however you develop as a stand-up, whatever your backstory is, um, there's no bad way to do it. There's no right or wrong route into stand-up. So I'm quite grateful that I had A taste of broadcasting quite early in my career because i think it's one of those things that these opportunities don't come very often stand up is something that is very much a meritocracy the funnier and better you are the more work you get and you tend to kind of you know the cream rises to the top i think in most cases Um, whereas telly is more random you can't make people put you on telly and when you get an opportunity um you know to work on a television series It's certainly, you know, because I was in my early to mid-30s when when those sorts of opportunities came along. I just thought I'd be mad not to take it. Um, I think that my stand-up has been influenced by my telework. I'm probably probably a bit more polished than I was when I started stand-up because when you're a broadcaster, you've kind of got to make sure that... Well, first of all, there is some technical things that you learn. You, you tend to learn how long a minute is and how long two minutes are. And you you, you work with a script and you work with writers and stuff. So when, when I returned to stand up, I think I was certainly a more disciplined and polished performer than I was when I started. I do lots of emceeing and I think emceeing is probably um, attractive to me because it's similar to the kind of thing that's, uh, you know, I'm required to do on the box, which is to be the voice of a show, to hold it together, to be the continuity. So, yeah, I think there are echoes of my telly experience in my live work. The flip side also is that I'm quite glad I've waited this long to really sink my teeth into stand up, because when I started in my early 20s, I didn't really have anything to say. I I, I wanted to be funny. I wanted an audience. But what's nice now is that a lot of life has happened to me since then, apart from having, you know, had the, the privilege of doing lots of really fun television projects uh, mad documentaries around the world about unusual people like the tallest woman in the world smallest man being part of Balls of Steel which love it or hate it is a phenomenon um, you know that's been that's a really nice sort of backdrop for me to have um, but I also find just going on stage and having lived a bit of life that that definitely helps me as a comedian I've got stuff to talk about and I'm, I'm certainly because years ago I worked with a promoter who said what are you angry about you're much too nice what, what makes you cross and I was thinking well not much really I'm very jolly but you know now that I'm older I'm nicely curmudgeonly and there's plenty I'm cross about.
1: Well, a lot of people find that emceeing can be quite difficult and that there's a fine line between just performing your material and being the host. So as the resident emcee of the Amuse Moose Comedy Club, what advice would you give to acts about emceeing?
0: There's this great debate in stand-up circles about which is harder, emceeing or doing a set. And I think um, I've given it a lot of thought, and I think the answer is quite simple, which is that uh, MCing is easier if you're just aiming for mediocrity. Then it's easier to do a mediocre job as an MC than to do a set. But to do to do um, MCing really well is is as hard, if not harder, I would say, because you've got to do what a comedian does in a set, but several times in the evening. It's like you've got to make the souffle rise several times. So um MCing is a really really interesting uh, challenge for a comedian. I think that. I heard a quote about emceeing, which I think there's something in, which is that the most important quality that an MC has to have is to be in control. I mean, it's a given. We've all got to be funny, of course. But control is crucial because you're there all night and you can't lose the crowd. Some comedians just don't suit being an MC because they, they, you know, I know comedians who who are quite edgy or whose material is quite dark or who like to create a slight a degree of animosity with the room. And that's the energy they work off. Those people often struggle as MCs. So as an MC, you need a mixture of things. You need to be able to uh, improvise with the crowd because you can't just phone in your material and then introduce each act. That's not going to work. You're hosting the part of the show, which is three dimensionals, the part where the audience are involved. And, you know, so charm, friendliness, not alienating the crowd and also the art of weaving material into what looks like a bit of a chat. Lots of MCs go on to be amazing stand ups. Because they require a skill set which is sort of a bit of a pick and mix, really. That they they've had to be able to improvise. They talk to the audience a bit, and they have to weave material into the into the chat. So a lot of a lot of the greats, Eddie Izzard included, but there are many others, um, cut their teeth in MCing, and uh, you can just see the effortless way that Eddie Izzard goes from you know material into audience participation and um, you know in my in my opinion I think you know emceeing creates some of the best stand-ups out there.
1: So how do you go about writing your material?
0: I find topical material the easiest to write. I find topical is the stuff that presents itself to me. So as I do a lot of emceeing I find that topical material works really well for emceeing because at the beginning of a night when the audience are cold and haven't got their heads around being told jokes yet that if you're able to be topical, at least then you've got you've got kind of relevance on your side. It's like you're in the moment. So I, I do a lot of topical writing. I really enjoy that. And what I'll simply do is go through, I'll, it's, if I'm honest, the Daily Mail, it's always the Daily Mail, okay? Because the Daily Mail sits in exactly the right place between the sun, which is a bit too silly and tabloid, and it's actually an awful lot of photographs, not much content. And, and then the, the, the broadsheets, which are a bit dry and dull. So the Daily Mail is just a treasure trove of those little stories, those obscure surveys that no one cares about, but which are fantastic material for a stand up. So I'll just go through, so I'll do a bit of a, you know, and obviously, you know, I'll go on, you know, there are a few sort of newsy websites that I'll look at as well. So I'll compile a list of stories and then just uh, try and think of jokes about them really and I do it all on the laptop so it's that you know there's no, nothing by hand. It's all it's all done on on my computer. And then I think about other stuff that matters to me. Um, I do talk a lot about my personal life because it's an unending source of hilarity. I've got two children, I'm married and you know, stuff happens every day. So that goes into my material. And what I tend to do, which I hope works, is because I always, I, especially with them seeing, it's difficult to do a routine because um, to do a routine, you know, in a way, the process of a routine evolving, especially if it's 10, 15 minutes worth, is, is a wonderfully organic thing that the great comedians like Dylan Moran and others, just slowly, it's like a bomb disposal expert. It's like one element and then the next element, and the next element until the crescendo. And that's a very exacting and organic process with a beginning, a middle and an end. And uh, that doesn't really work when you're comparing. You don't really have the audience's rapt attention. So my style as a comic has definitely been influenced by the emceeing. It's 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 much more gaggy, really. But what I do, my solution to stop it feeling too bitty, is I'll just take a subject such as a, you know a comedy staple, going to the supermarket. I make no apologies for that. I go to the supermarket. And I'm I, lots of things occur to me about the experience, which I feel the need to impart with the great British public. So there you go. I'm afraid I talk about supermarkets. I'm, I'm guilty as charged. But anyway, so what I'll do then is quite useful because um, I'll probably have about five or six jokes about going to the supermarket. They're not connected, but because they're in that subject area, then that's that's kind of that's like a routine, really. And that, that's a kind of for me, in, in many cases, that's been my solution to giving the material a bit of cohesion is to, you know, is to accept that I'm a jokes person. I am definitely more of a jokes than a storytelling sort of comic. I like jokes. I like putting them together. I love doing that Neil Simon thing of trying to work out what's a funnier, you know, month, October or November, or what's a funnier number, 11 or 17, you know. That's a sort of painstaking attention to detail that I enjoy. That sort of taps into the comedy nerd that I am. So I love to craft jokes and write jokes. But what I'll do, as I say, is I'll just social media. I'm working on some stuff at the moment about Facebook. So that takes me into Twitter and the kind of the digital world we live in. And, that, and then I can get on to technology and smartphones. And so that's how, I, um, that's how I bring, as I say, a bit of order to the, to the chaos that is my worldview.
1: And you were saying that you speak a lot about your personal life. So how do your family feel about you performing stand-up?
0: I think my defense against the charge of hanging my dirty laundry out to dry in terms of talking about my personal life is that it's actually the Les Dawson defense, really, which is that if I talk about my mother-in-law or my wife, it is my fictional wife. You know, I'm a comedian and I make stuff. I will say anything I can to make you laugh. And whether it's true or not is quite irrelevant. You know, my job is is just to create mirth. And uh, it's yeah. You know, when I talk about my wife, it's my fictional wife. I love my wife. We've got a fantastic marriage and I wouldn't change a thing. I'm the luckiest man in the world. Now, none of those things are funny, are they? I think you'll agree. Um, however, if I was to speculate on some of the less perfect bits of our marriage, um, you know, the audience suddenly engage because it's the human truth, you know, that nothing's quite as rosy as it seems. I think when I talk about my personal life as a, as a comic, um, all the characters involved, you know, the children, my wife, they're, they're my stage, that's my stage wife, my stage children. But I suppose like any, any writer actually or any creative person, there is truth to be found in there. So I'll do jokes about, I don't know, my wife and I have got a new position or i have doing some stuff about role playing at the moment. Someone advised that we try role playing. So I talk about that. Now, we don't do role playing. But maybe a a psychotherapist could, you know, get under the skin of my act and work out what I'm saying about my marriage. But, you know, the the facts in it are not facts, but I suppose there's a grain of truth in everything.
1: And having performed a lot on television and live stand-up and also publishing books, including one recently, do you mind if I put my hand on it? Do you have a favourite medium of performance?
0: People ask me whether I prefer doing live comedy or making a television show or writing a book um, being on the radio, any of those things. And the honest truth is that I really like doing all of those things. They all interest me. And I feel they all fall into the same ballpark of of being, you know, an entertainer or at least attempting to be an entertainer. That's, that's my job. That's the brief. And uh, in a way, it's fun. And quite of our times for for me to be working in different genres and different media because that's, I think that's the way of the world now. All the boundaries have loosened up and you've got, you know, TV presenters write books and stand-up comedians become film actors. And it's all, you know, there's no rule book really now, as long as you do a decent job, I suppose. So I really enjoy all of those different things. I like the directness of stand-up. I like the fact that it doesn't have to go through a committee. If I think of a joke, I say it later that night. I also, you know, people have... Talk suggested in the past uh that i i could work with others who might advise me on the stand up get some professional help in and i don't really understand why you would need that because the audience guide you all the way if they're laughing it's working if they're not it ain't so i love the simplicity of that you, you know i think i say that to newer comics which is that the audience will guide you that they are the midwife really to the baby that is your comedy and they, you know, at all times the audience are deciding the tone um, and just the general quality of your work. You know, they're, they're the arbiters, and, and that's, you know, it's so a lovely, A, it's terrifying, B, quite liberating as well. And it's important to listen to it and not ignore what the audience say.
1: You're going to be performing your new show at Edinburgh this year, which is called You're Awesome, and also features video clips of your search to find Britain's most awesome person. And in previous Edinburgh shows, you've, for example, I'm Here to Help in 2007 and Sharing Too Much in 2011. So there seems to be an element of identification in each of them. Is that something you always try and include in your show?
0: The reason why I'm doing this uh, show You're Awesome in Edinburgh this year is because I you know i want to have my cake and eat it really i really like writing jokes and saying them out loud that is you know that's the essence of what a comedian is in my opinion and i love to do that but i also love talking to the audience and i just decided i decided to do a show which which has that built into the format because i didn't i didn't want to feel that i was cheating by just riffing with the crowd because there's a slight danger especially at edinburgh when people are up there you know the public critics everybody are up there to see your stuff it's like this is an hour of mark dolan we're going to get a real you know strand of his dna here that's, that's everyone's expecting that so i always you know i'm sort of slightly i want to avoid you know falling into that trap of performing a, a sort of club style set um, in that sort of theatrical environment that is Edinburgh, it doesn't feel right just to MC your own show and uh, just to riff with the crowd and do a bit of material and, you know, sort of 20 minutes stretched over an hour. I didn't want that to happen. So I just thought, well, I know, why don't I go for a bold theme, which is awesomeness and a show which is out there to celebrate everything that's great it's still a stand-up show it's entirely designed to be funny but it's just coming from a slightly more upbeat perspective which i think fits with my comedy persona anyway because even if i you know even if i mock uh, my you know audience members and if we get into a bit of a banter with any of the crowd I, you know I mean I can be quite outrageous and things I say but it's it comes from the right place you know I, I sort of love everyone and I see everyone as, as great really so that's that, that in a way that's my that's how I am as a person and as a comedian so this is a format that has audience participation built in because at a certain point in the show I explain to the crowd that I'm in search of Britain's most awesome person and i ask them out there if if there's anyone that's awesome in the crowd that i need to know about when i was previewing it i started by asking for awesome people and i realized that that's a foolish thing to do because anyone that puts their hand up if you ask for awesomeness then that that person's probably quite annoying i would have thought and the opposite of awesome so i suddenly realized that we should get people to volunteer their best mate or their partner and that's been from the moment i did that there was a real click with the show and i haven't looked back Um, and it's amazing how many how many you know hidden talents people have got how many stories just you know it is is a really great thing so i select two people um based on who the crowd think is awesome we get them on stage i do i do quite a bit with i grill them at length um and then the audience vote for the most awesome person at the end so you know it's just it's a different show every night and it's an amazing buzz for me so as i say i get to i get to tell jokes and i get to sort of muck around with the crowd and not feel guilty for doing either
1: and having performed at Edinburgh for so many years, including performing our shows, but also when you were a student, what's been your experience of the Edinburgh Festival so far?
0: The Edinburgh Festival isn't just the greatest cultural event in the world, um, but it's, in a way, it, it's you know, for for a comedian, it doesn't really, it's unrivalled. You know, there's no there's no alternative to Edinburgh. It's a unique platform, and you know, a month. A whole month of just being a comedian every night, that's your job. 25 shows in 26 days, an hour with people in front of you, sometimes many, sometimes just a couple of people, right? A couple of, you know, quite cross Scottish people. But either way, it's a platform. And you don't, you know, every comedian, doesn't matter how successful they are, the huge comics... Love it because actually there's something wonderfully distilled about an hour, and they love the int- intimacy of some of those slightly comparatively smaller venues—100, 200, 300, 500. You know that's small for some some acts, and it's just a tremendous buzz for them to work on that scale again. So it's it's amazing for the big boys and the big girls, and then it's also a lovely it's a lovely um, fast track for newer comics who haven't you know have never spoken continuously for an hour let alone as a stand-up I mean it's just mind-boggling when you first do it so yeah it's an amazing platform it's unique Edinburgh is one of the, one of the most stunning cities in the world I spent four years there as a student it's an unbelievable unbelievable place to get drunk it's beautiful it's in Scotland which is an awesome place I you know I, I can't speak highly of it I mean the one challenge people always ask me what advice would you give to people going up for the first time like comedians and i would say the greatest challenge is to try to enjoy it because it's a bit like a reality show if you watch big brother or the you know i'm a celebrity you can't understand how small-minded the people in the big brother house get they get caught up into it you're like look you're on a tv show just play the game but within minutes they're saying hey where's my milk allowance and you just think come on you know the drill you've watched this show edinburgh's like that where beforehand you're like I'm going to enjoy this I'm going to relax I'm not going to worry about reviews I'm just going to enjoy myself and do as good a show as I can then you get there after three days you're just a complete basket case a nervous wreck you haven't slept enough you're hungover, you know and um, you just you know time after time that's happened to me but the more I've done it the more I've really tried to enjoy it because you know look at it for what it is which is just a wonderful opportunity and it's also not the biggest deal in the world so if you win an award or you sell loads of tickets, that's lovely, but it's it's not a game changer. So, you know, but flip side is if you have a hard time and your show's a bit of a work in progress and, you know, Her Majesty's Press agree with you, um, it seems like the end of the world at the time, but that isn't either. It's not going to make you, it's not going to break you. It's just a fantastic, you know, it's a fantastic part of the journey, that trip up north in August.
1: And do you find that you get heckled a lot?
0: I'm very lucky. I don't get heckled very much. I do lots of MCing and I don't know I don't think maybe the MC gets heckled as much as maybe someone doing their set because the MC has had a chance to kind of really own the evening from the beginning. I mean I did three nights in Liverpool last month and we, we it was just night after night every night a lot of stag parties in and I noticed that it was definitely easier for me as the MC than someone doing a set because... What happens is that when you're the MC, you get to own the night. You get to make your mark at the beginning and you tend to have you get the punters on side early doors before the alcohol has kicked in. Um, and you can also establish who the key characters are. And, and so you make it your own. It's a lot harder when you've just come from another gig somewhere else. You're doubling up and you're closing. And, you know, it's the first time, you know, they've seen this person. The first time that person has seen that crowd. They n- they're not aware of who's who. So, um, you know, that's probably the time when you're at the most risk of getting heckled. Um, but I don't tend to get heckled. Um, if I do, I just work with it. I just improvise around it. There are, I have these stock heckles. And it's what um, the great Ivan Nbina describes a stock heckle as as the knife in, in your sock, right? As in when you go out, put a knife in your sock just in case there's trouble. That's his fabulous metaphor for um, for having some stock put downs. There's a great debate about whether you should improvise, um a response to a heckler or whether you should have a generic put down and i think the uh, the answer is that if you've got something up your sleeve if you've got a few ideas of what to do um then uh, you probably won't need them it's nice like travel insurance do you know what i mean you just you know tick that box as, you know if you if you have it you won't need it sort of thing um i don't think there's as much of a culture as heckling as there used to be i think that the professionalization of comedy um And the increased ticket sales and the generally higher respect with which live comedy is held by the public through stuff that goes on their telly like live at the Apollo and things like that means that the public have a have a respect for it and don't see it as quite the kind of, um, you know, market marketplace brawl that it probably was in in the 70s, you know, um, and even the 80s. A lot of the reason why I think there's less heckling is because audiences pay more for tickets and they've, you know, especially, you know, if you're married and stuff, you've booked a babysitter, you're probably having a meal beforehand, you'll drink several pints of overpriced lager when you're there. You're looking at an evening which could set you back 40, 50, 60 quid in some cases. So people's self-preservation instincts tend to kick in and they tend um, not to spoil it for themselves by heckling. I think heckling is quite misunderstood, actually, because there's so many different aspects to it probably the hardest thing to deal with is um mindless drunken chatter that's actually the worst because you know a pointed witty heckle is brilliant and i've seen you know amazing comedians just doff their cap to a great heckle and go that was funny so you know you've contributed and just uh to go with it you know just it's not always a challenge to your authority sometimes a wonderful moment can happen and someone can interject and you know, if it's coming from the right place, I don't think it is a heckle. I think the the notion of a heckle is is you know it's all about the motivation, the intent, and uh, I think that um, I you know because I improvise a lot and I talk to the crowd a lot, I ask them to contribute and I get a lot of input. And I, as I say, I, as much as as I, you know, I, I'm I'm there's a limitless amount of stuff that comes from the crowd, and that's no problem at all. Um, but drunken 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 heckling, you know that kind of verbal diarrhea that you get. From a tired and emotional punter, it's really difficult to deal with because they're so they're so medicated on the booze that they're kind of they're actually they're not even they don't have any sense of self-awareness or self-consciousness, which is normally the thing that keeps us all being civilized human beings. And uh, they don't have that because of the Pinot Grigio. And that's really uh, that's hard. That's hard to deal with, because what happens is that you've got an artful put down. You know, everyone's laughing. And that person just carries on and carries on and carries on. And I had it the other day. Ironically, I did have it the other night. And yeah, kept, you know, th- this woman wasn't a bad person, but she was just drunk and kept talking. And she'd she'd stop for a while and then she'd start again. And then she'd stop. And at a certain point, she said to the audience, because she stopped and she started. I'm like, you know, when you think you fixed a tap, like, that's what it was like. It's like, OK, I fixed the tap. And then a few seconds later, drip drip and it was like that's what it was this woman was was just like a kind of human dripping tap and uh, she needed a spanner or something
1: and do you have a favorite type of venue that you prefer performing in
0: i really love purpose-built venues i've got to say so any any theater or purpose-built space uh, is just a treat because you've got a decent microphone and decent lights and that really helps helps us in our jobs actually i mean it's amazing how you know you'll, you'll go to a gig and you know, if you can't be, if you're not very well lit, you can't really be seen, or the microphone's a bit dodgy, or, I mean, I did it, bizarrely did a gig recently, it was a great, I really enjoyed it as a a fabulous gig, small gig in North London, but the, the, the cable, the microphone was just on, was like, two feet of cable you know so i just couldn't move i was just like i was just glued to the to this to the amplifier and i couldn't move it was really really odd it was it was um very restricting and i just thought come on please i just want to move around here so um i really like yeah you know purposeful venues but um mainly i do have a a, a simple kind of preference which is um i'm just i like to perform at whatever it is which is is an actual comedy event so what i mean by that is um it's great to be in a in a comedy show that's in a theater or it's in a room above a pub or you know it could be a charity thing that has been organized in a whatever you know some sort of venue that's great what's not nice is when you do a gig which isn't really a gig they're the ones um, that's the stuff of nightmares that's when you turn up to an obscure pub in the middle of nowhere and you get there and it's basically it's just there's a pub And there's just a microphone at one end of the pub, like next to near the fruit machine. And that's really difficult because it's not a comedy club and it's not even, you know, obviously the venue is not highly appropriate for comedy. And, you know, such is my commitment to the cause. I always I don't complain. Obviously, I just get on with it and my fellow comics get on with it, too. But. I suppose those are the only gigs. You know what? That's the thing. You would imagine that comics would be worried about a rowdy room, a drunk crowd, stag parties. No, not really. It's just, as I say, it's the gig that isn't really a gig. That's the one which is a challenge.
1: And do you have a favourite type of audience that you prefer performing to?
0: I just like real real punters, the public. Um, and what's harder is when you do an event. I mean, I, I do some corporate events and, you know, that's that's fine, but it's it's just... It, I, I like sort of, I, my comedy is very much about, you know, I talk about my life and, and it's all very authentic and it's real. And I just like to work with um, a slightly sort of real audience. And what I don't, I don't enjoy so much is a sort of chin, chin stroking, um, media savvy sort of crowd, because I just feel that there's a lack of innocence there in the whole endeavour. So, you know, I mean, if I'm honest, I'll take any audience. But you certainly, for example, notice a difference between, you know, an Edinburgh audience, fringe audiences. Some nights it'll be, um, you, you know, I mean, I was really lucky last in, last time I was there was 2011. i got loads of Scots coming to my show, which I know sounds obvious because we're in Scotland, but not everyone gets loads of Scots coming to their show. And I was so delighted that I had lots of locals. And because I've lived in Scotland for four years, there's a lot of material there about that. And I loved it. But then those those other nights when you just a lot of people... Uh, a lot of people wearing um, skinny jeans and with a little notebook out, and you just think, "Oh God, this, you know, who are you? Is this real?" So yeah, I, I you know, I, I, it's a hard question to answer. I'll take any audience really, but whatever approximates to the great British public is my favourite.
1: And do you have any tips or advice for aspiring comedians?
0: The brilliant comedian uh, Martin Beaumont gave me a great piece of advice many years ago, which is he said keep writing write constantly because it grows your persona and that was a brilliant piece of advice because you think that your persona evolves in the course of performing as many gigs as possible whereas actually of course stage time is important but i think when you don't when you don't turn over the material you hit a bit of a glass ceiling in terms of your development as an artist and i think that it's coming out of your comfort zone and putting you know in a way aiming to put one or two new jokes into your set every time you perform it doesn't you haven't got to just bin 20 minutes and start again every time because if you did you'd you'd probably struggle um anyone would struggle with that but yeah i think that um that discipline of because it's the easiest thing in the world to fill up your diary and just to gig hard but there does come a point where you're not really learning that much from from you know from gig to gig so i think the writing is the thing and um the other thing is perseverance Stand up if you look at who prevails it's not i mean of course you know talent is involved, but most of you know most of the really um successful people have also got a dogged determination. you know we all know people that are i mean every comedian knows people who are much funnier than they are. Billy connolly talks with uh you know humility about how much more funny the guys uh in the docks when he was working when he started out before he would stand up, how much funnier they were, how much wittier um that he was the one that wound up doing it but um it's just uh you know a lot of a lot of stand-up you know the reason why people are stand-ups um, sometimes you know you'll get a punter watches telling her how did he get that or why is she doing that and it's it's because they did it they just they did you know they wrote them they wrote their stuff and they got out and they did it and so with stand-up the key to it is just doing it you know just get out there and do it and keep doing it
1: and you studied politics at edinburgh university so do you have any tips or advice for students
0: I wish I could have my studying days back because, I, you know, it was four years of, of debauchery, if I'm honest, and, you know, like 10 minutes of studying, really. That's, that, is, that is, you know, that is a summary of my academic performance while I was, uh, while I was in Edinburgh at the Edinburgh uh, University of Edinburgh. So I had a brilliant time. But I think actually, I think university is wasted on the young you know, because if I did, if I did a degree now, I I mean, I'd be like one of those weird mature students, you know, what I mean, I'd be early for lectures and I'd be taking notes and I'd be handing essays in on time. And, you know, what I mean, I'd be like really weirdly motivated because I see the value of it now. Whereas at the time I was just an idiot. I mean, I was just a buffoon and a fool. And, you know, so um, my advice to um, young people is that you'll never have a chance to, um, just sit around with a load of books and ponder life um you know ever again it won't happen the minute you get out there the pressing need to uh you know to get a roof over your head and to eat and generally survive the rat race is um you know it's, it's, it becomes a permanent distraction and yeah so I definitely looking back on it, some of my happiest times at school and also at university is just yeah just strolling around in baggy corduroy trousers with my other foppish friends um, you know pondering life that's a lovely thing to do and that's why I do passionately believe that it's the right of every young person to go and get higher education I think it's terribly important rite of passage and it's kind of your it's in your gift uh, to either be a complete swat and we need those people because of you know we need doctors and lawyers and all that stuff god bless them They're, those people are brilliant and quite indispensable but we also need we also need hopefully um the wastrels you know the people who swang the lead because you know that's kind of now what i do for a living is sit around pondering life and i invoice for that so you know you need you need um you need both you need all sorts and it's funny how actually You know, all those skills, whether it be becoming a scientific genius or a great historian or even a a comedian or a screenwriter or whatever it is, you know, um, most of all of those skills really are honed in those precious few years between school and the big bad world.